Volume 2, Chapter 20 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 20 True revenge is patient as the watchful alchemist, sagacious as the bloodhound on the scent, secret as death. Epps Sargent From Catherine Bolton to Elizabeth Montague April 2nd Sad were the tidings communicated to me this morning through Miss Ashburton, whose little daughters are my most promising pupils. Mr. Merritt is preparing to sue for divorce, and worse, Laura Hilson is pronounced by the gossiping world his bride-elect. Ah, Evelyn's chastening has indeed been severe. Blow after blow falls upon her doomed head. But she no longer resists. Her misery is too full of despair for her even to murmur. She asks but one thing more of this world, a grave. Her hopes are placed upon the next. And Laura Hilson, how thoroughly successful have been the evil machinations of this designing girl. We have every one in turn been instruments in her hands, and she has played what stops she pleased upon us all. I questioned Dr. Wesley a few days ago, and learnt that he had seen Miss Hilson lately, that he had, inadvertently, mentioned Ellen's devotion and mind to the unknown invalid, and that Laura, after many anxious inquiries, pronounced that the doctor's patient was no other than Evelyn Merritt, by whom the anonymous letters were written is no longer a matter of doubt. Evelyn's interview with her father must have been deeply affecting, but I was not present at their first meeting. Mr. Willard now sees his daughter regularly every day, but his wife remains inexorable. Richard is convalescent, but unable to move his wounded limb. His impatience greatly retards his recovery, but Dr. R. does not consider him in a dangerous state. Mr. Elton continues to pay his daily visits to the house. I am busied with my school, and we constantly pass each other in the entry or meet at the door and exchange a few commonplace remarks. We have never once entered into conversation. Outwardly, we are little more than strangers to each other. Ellen tells me that Dan has been engaged as a porter for a large mercantile establishment and receives high wages. The poor man has partially recovered his sight, but still suffers. I also unexpectedly learnt that this situation was procured for him by Mr. Elton. Well, may he be active in doing good. How else can he expiate the evil? Netta daily becomes more serviceable, and Blanche has grown entirely useless. Her faculties are totally paralyzed. Tender and sincere is the compassion she excites. A single glance at her dejected countenance almost unfits me for the discharge of my duties. I am pursued by that troubled look, those mournful dark eyes, now gazing on vacancy, 
and now flashing with the wildness of insanity, are ever before me. Perhaps I have neglected her. If so, she must command more of my time. My thoughts she cannot more engross. April 3rd. Today, Amy was to have become a wife. I called for her on my way to Nancy's this afternoon, for she had promised to accompany me. She must have passed a sleepless night and a sorrowful day, for her eyes were heavy, and the smile with which she greeted me looked as though it should have been followed by a tear. Her health is so delicate that this bracing air withers rather than invigorates. Carefully and tenderly, over her gentle bosom, I had pinned her fur tippet. We were almost ready to sally forth when a small package was placed in Amy's hands. Curiosity was instantly on the alert. We opened it together. It contained a magnificent bridal veil, a wedding gift from one of Amy's uncles residing in Maine. Although he had not lately heard from his niece, the idea that her nuptials might not take place had never entered into the head of the simple-hearted old man. Amy glanced at the veil, which I was unfolding thoughtfully, descanting as I did so upon the richness of the embroidery. With a trembling hand, she took it from mine, laid it on the table, and, turning away, said, Let us go to Evelyn. She, she expects us. In spite of her wonderful self-control, Amy could not speak calmly. She appeared to be suffocating. In passing out of the room, we encountered Mrs. Elwell. Amy pointed to the veil and said more composedly, From uncle, lay it aside, mother dear. Mrs. Elwell pressed her child to her swelling bosom and burst into tears. A few words, a very few words, Amy whispered in her mother's ear, and then, taking my arm, for she needed support, we left the house together. Talk of heroism in the soldier who braves death amidst the exciting combat of the battlefield. Far more heroic is a woman's calm endurance of a weary life. April 4th The first words that greeted me on reaching home yesterday were spoken by Mrs. Willard, whose tones daily grew shriller. Your pretty favourite Blanche has disappeared. Netta wanted to search for her, but that I forbid. There is too much work to be done for the servants to be gadding about in the streets all day. Yours is a finely regulated household, to be sure. How long has she been gone? I inquired abruptly. I'm sure I don't know, a couple of hours or more. Without speaking another word, I hastened from the house in pursuit of Blanche, and taking chance as my guide. It was already dusk, and fortunately I met Mr. Willard returning from his counting room. He kindly and willingly offered to aid me in my search. We walked straight on, almost too much alarmed to converse, but every once and a while indulging in some unconnected and unmeaning observation, as though to persuade ourselves that we felt perfectly calm. Scarcely had we reached Prince Street before I observed a crowd, or rather a mob, gathering a short distance in advance of us. In another moment a young girl rushed by and disappeared. She wore neither hood nor shawl. The dark hair 
partially loosened, and streaming in the wind, entirely concealed her face. One arm was extended as she ran, and she grasped something in her hand, which, in the rapidity of her flight, I could not distinguish. Was that not Blanche? asked Mr. Willard, turning to look after her. No, yes, perhaps it was, I replied, but very doubtingly. Had we not better return, then? A feeling stronger than mere curiosity made me answer. Let us first see what is the matter here. It might not have been Blanche. At all events, let us discover why this crowd has gathered. While I spoke, the throng parted. Several men were bearing between them a person, either seriously wounded or otherwise injured. We took refuge upon the steps of a druggist's shop. As the men drew nearer, followed by the mob, we caught the sound of the most fearful imprecations, mingled with groans, and ever and anon a savage yell, apparently wrung forth by the most intense agony. These curses, groans, and yells proceeded from the injured man. My limbs shook so violently that I caught hold of Mr. Willard for support. I dreaded to look. The sound of the voice was so familiar. Nearer and nearer came the men. Willard, now greatly excited, pressed forward, unconsciously drawing me with him. Oh, what a horrible spectacle met our startled eyes. In the arms of the three men lay a miserable wretch, whom we had known too well, for we recognized him in spite of his frightful transformation. I can hardly describe to you his appearance. The glance which I took was so hasty, and I had not courage to look again. His face was blistered, scorched, and mangled, as though some unquenchable flame had eaten to the very bone. One eye was entirely closed, and appeared to me as though it had been burnt from its socket. His magnificent forehead was indented by deep scarlet ridges, the glossy black hair that once clustered so gracefully about it had been torn away by his own frantic hands, his lips. But I spare you the details so terrible. It was Colonel Damoreau, but Colonel Damoreau forever robbed of the weapons of the demigod Alcides. Mr. Willard shrank away, muttering, An ugly business, an ugly business, that. Many of the throng, who could press near enough to behold the face of the miserable man, drew back in horror, and he was soon borne into the apothecary's shop. Home, home was all I could say. And homeward we hurried. Netta opened the door for us. Blanche, I ejaculated. Oh, come to her quickly, answered the frightened child, preceding me as I ran up the stairs. In her chamber, crouching in the farthest corner, and moaning and muttering unintelligible words, sat Blanche. I approached and accosted her gently. She stretched out her right hand towards me. It held a bottle labelled with the word vitriol. She seemed unconscious of any pain, yet that hand was blistered and burnt, and her clothes were scorched in many places by the consuming liquid. Oh, Blanche, what have you done? 
both vows. I have kept both vows. Father, thou art avenged. Where is he? Oh, if you had seen him, his eyes. They will never shine lovingly again. Their basilic light is quenched. His lips, they cannot betray now. Look, it is emptied. She dropped the bottle as she spoke. I was speechless, powerless with awe. For the first time, Blanche now seemed to experience acute suffering from her hand. Uttering a sharp cry, she held it towards me with the significant action of a child seeking relief. The flesh was seriously burnt, and part of the hand looked swollen, and part seemed strangely shriveled. The simple remedies which I have found efficacious in cases of ordinary burns were applied, but gave no relief. She grew wild with pain, wilder, I should have said, for she was frantic before. Dr. R. examined the hand, and after some hours of agony his prescriptions ameliorated her sufferings. It was then that her madness, for reason was now wholly dethroned, took a different shape. She wrung her hands and wept, and tossed about her arms, muttering, "'Send it away! Shut it out! Do not let it stare at me so, will you? What a frightened face! Who did it? Not I!' I tell you, I loved him. I would lay down my life for him. Who did it? Do not let it scowl at me so. It has no eyes. Flames of fire darted out from the hollow sockets. Take it away, take it away. They burn me. I tried to dissipate this afflicting vision by soothing words, and she turned towards me with a vacant gaze and said, Bring my father, will you? Tell him that you, Belle, is here, and that we are to be married today. Tell him that I am innocent, that it was all a foolish dream, that we are to be married. Go bring him. I will never leave him again, and we shall be so happy. Do not cross the graveyard as you go. My mother lies there. I did not kill her. Let her rest. Raving thus frantically, the wretched creature passed the night. Morning finds her too exhausted to speak, and yet no more composed. It was Colonel Damoreau, then, who caused the misery of this misguided girl, and Mr. Elton. They were in Charleston at the same time. She might have seen them together and recognized Ernest as his friend. How blind I have been! Who is not blind that trusts to appearances? Dreadful yesterday! When shall I forget its horrors? That yesterday was to have been the bridal of Colonel Damoreau. End of chapter 20